Let's turn to Matthew, the fourth chapter. Matthew chapter 4. I'm sure you've noticed that Matthew's concern in these first four chapters, at least until four chapter, 12, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, is mainly introductory matters. His emphasis here in these chapters is on the preparation of his Messiah. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, he traces his ancestry from Abram down through the son of, uh, through David and indicates that Jesus is the son of David. And then in verse 18 through the end of that chapter, he describes, begins to describe his advent, his birth, and the events that are related to his first coming. And then chapter 3, he reports on the ministry of John the Baptist, who was Jesus' ambassador. And then finally, uh, in the last uh, five verses of chapter 3, beginning with verse 3, uh, verse 13 through chapter 4, verse 11, you have two events described, his baptism and his temptation. The purpose of these two events is to demonstrate the approval, God's approval of his son. Last week, Steve taught on the baptism. This morning, we want to look at the temptation. Let's read the first 11 verses of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he stood him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and, mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. And there, there are a number of things I want you to observe in this chapter. The first is the connection between chapter 4 and chapter 3. The little conjunction with which this chapter begins then indicates that the two events, the baptism and the temptation, are related. First there's the testimony, and then comes the test. The, the dove uh, descends, the spirit descends in the form of a dove, and then immediately the devil appears. So the two chapters are interrelated. And what we learn from the baptism is that the father was pleased with the son. There was no uh, displeasure in his heart toward the son. He loved him. He had done things acceptably. He had lived his life as God had, had intended him to live it. And Luke tells us, furthermore, that when Jesus was driven into the wilderness, he was filled with the Spirit, so there was nothing that separated him from the Father. In other words, the ordeal in the wilderness was not punishment but simply another step in the preparation of the Son for the ministry which God intended for him. Now, that's helpful. 
It is to me. Because it helps me to see that the ordeals that I have to face in life, the times of intense pressure and struggle, the times when I'm stressed almost beyond endurance, are not necessarily signs of God's displeasure. They may be. I may be suffering because of some sin that that I've committed, but that's not necessarily so. It may simply be part of the process of leading me on to maturity. Now, the second observation that I want to make about this chapter is that Jesus' temptation is a result of a decision that he made to follow the Father. In chapter 3, Matthew records the baptism by John and the announcement by the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father's statement in chapter 3 is a quotation from Psalm 2, as I'm sure you know. It's one of the Messianic Psalms. It's clearly Messianic. It refers to Jesus. And in that psalm, the father says, This is my son. Today I have become his father. I have begotten him. And so Jesus is introduced here to John and to the nation as the Messiah. This is the point from which he embarks upon his ministry. And Jesus cooperates. He says it's proper, it's right for us to fulfill all righteousness. And from that point on, he begins to to fulfill his destiny as the Messiah. And immediately... He's led into the wilderness where Satan tries to deter him, tries to frustrate him. Now again, this is very helpful because it teaches us that whenever we make a crucial decision decision in our life to follow God, we can expect opposition. Satan will try to block every effort that we make to be obedient. Whenever we make a decision, we can expect an attack. If you decide as a father that you're going to begin uh, praying with your children at night, which I believe is something that we as fathers ought to do, those are great times, kids are in a mellow mood, and, and those are just neat times to be with our children. You'll find when you make that decision, that will be the night that their bedtime falls right in the middle of the last quarter of a crucial football game. Or they'll have a lot of homework and they'll drag on into the evening or someone will call you on the telephone at their bedtime or something else will happen. It's inevitable. Or when you decide that you're going to be more disciplined in your prayer life and you're going to get up in the morning and start praying, that will be the night that you have insomnia. And the alarm will go off and you'll think, Oh, not this morning, Lord. Surely you don't want me to get up this morning when I haven't been able to sleep last night. Or the morning that you decide you're going to get up and start spending more time in the Word, that's the morning that the Sports Illustrated is going to be sitting on the coffee table. And uh, there's going to be a real temptation to pick it up. Whenever you make a decision, Satan is going to try to frustrate you. Because Satan knows that these small decisions determine the course of our life, and he'll try to frustrate us at this point. I have a very good friend back in California uh, who just uh, wrote this past week and told me of his decision to go to seminary. And uh, while he was struggling with the decision, he was working on his income tax for this coming year, and it dawned on him that this past year, he's a stockbroker in San Francisco, and this past year he made $200,000. He's 27 years old. And every time he thinks of going to seminary, like a neon light, he sees $200,000. And you see Satan's trying to block him, trying to deter him from the path that God has called him to. So we need to see these frustrations for what they are. They're satanic deterrence. 
The third observation I'd like to make is simply that Jesus was tempted, which is really pretty profound when you think about it, because he was without sin. Which leads me to the conclusion that temptation is not sin. Now that again is a valuable truth, because I think sometimes we succumb to temptation because we think we already have. We've struggled so long against some temptation to lie in order to get out of a jam, or we've struggled against some vile or vulgar thought that keeps trying to force its way into our mind, and we, see, we feel so defiled by the temptation, we think we've already sinned. And so we just give up and capitulate. But temptation is not sin. It's only an inducement to sin. Now let's look at the three attacks which Jesus experienced. Luke says that when Satan finished all these temptations, he departed from him. And the implication seems to be that Jesus was tempted in every way that it's possible for a man to be tempted. In other words, all temptation comes to us in one of these three forms. We can take any attack and we can find that it fits into one of these three categories, the three attacks which Jesus experienced. And the thing I want you to notice about these attacks is the subtlety of the adversary. He always operates in disguise. He never appears to be what he is. Jesus said he, Satan is a liar and a murderer, but he always disguises his murderous intent. He doesn't approach Jesus with a blatant inducement to sin. Rebel against the Father. Go your own way. Live your own life. Get drunk or whatever. That's not his approach. When I was a kid, uh, we used to go to the State Fair of Texas to, to see various things. And one of the major attractions was Punch and Judy shows, you know, where the puppets uh, enact some melodrama. And there was always a villain who uh, tried to get Judy to stick out her tongue at her mother or something like that. Well, Satan doesn't do that. He doesn't tempt us in those blatant, obvious ways. He's very subtle. His pitch primarily is, look what you're missing in life. Surely God doesn't want you to miss out. Surely there must be something more to life than, than the way God is directing you. You haven't lived until you've turned on to drugs or sex or whatever. I was at the courthouse last week and I was listening to a conversation going on between two young men on the other side of the locker and uh, I couldn't help but hear them. They were discussing their conquests of the weekend before and as I listened to them I, uh, I couldn't help but think uh, of the misery that lay ahead for these young men because of their, their view of marriage and, and women, the purpose of women, how to treat them. And I thought ahead of the uh, heartache and the broken marriages and the drunkenness and the separation from children and the deep regret of old age that always follows a life that when we that always follows when we believe Satan's lie. And uh, I wanted to run around the other side of the locker and grab him and say, "You got it all wrong. Hey, man, you've believed the lie. Don't believe it." But uh, I knew they wouldn't accept it because Satan has so subtly insinuated his philosophy into the world, people believe that's the way to live. That's what gives you life, and you're going to miss out if you don't experience all these things. 
And that's Satan's approach to Jesus. And as we'll see, the lie has great appeal. Now, the first temptation is found in verse 3. He tempts him to turn stones into bread. The desert was littered with uh, flat stones that looked like pita bread. And apparently, that's what, uh, what brought this temptation to mind, that Jesus was hungry. He'd been fasting for 40 days. And so he says to Jesus, if you are a son of God, he's going back to the statement at the baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Satan says, if you're really a son of God, then God doesn't want you to suffer. He doesn't want you to miss out on anything. He doesn't want you to be hungry. Use your power to, to create bread out of these stones. And it's an approach that's as old as, as the Garden of Eden. Satan said to Eve, Surely God has not said you shall not eat of every tree. God is really not an old fogey. He doesn't want to take all the joy out of life. So just uh, do something impulsive to meet your own needs. And what he's doing here is tempting Jesus to question the sufficiency of God. He wants him to believe that God is not enough. There has to be something more. Surely God doesn't want you to be hungry. And Satan says the same thing to us today. Surely God doesn't want you to be single for the rest of your life. Surely God doesn't want you to be sick or lonely or unemployed or frustrated on your job. You need to do something in order to make life better for yourself. Now, in order to put things in balance, we need to understand that it's, God's not in, it's not God's intent to make us miserable. He's not bent on our destruction. The temptation here is to satisfy, to Jesus, is to satisfy himself apart from God's plan. It was God's plan that Jesus spend this period of time in hunger. That was his will. And had Jesus acted on his own, he would have frustrated God's plan. The best biblical illustration I can think of this uh, principle is that of Abraham and, and Hagar. God promised Abraham he would have a son. It would be the son of promise who would continue the line of blessing. And for 25 years, Abraham and Sarah tried to have a son. And finally, time ran out for Sarah. She could no longer have children. So Abraham had to do something. See, it was God's intention to bring the child into the world miraculously. But Abraham thought he had to do something. He had to manipulate things in order to bring about God's best. And so he, he had a child by Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden. And you know the anguish that that produced in his own life, and, and it continues on until today. But note Jesus' answer. He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He quotes a passage out of Deuteronomy, which uh, Moses is a quotation from Moses' message to the people. He reminds them that there was a period of time when they were in the wilderness that they were hungry. And God fed them with manna. He provided their needs miraculously 
So, he says, you will learn that man does not live by bread alone, but, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, life does not consist of material things. It consists of spiritual realities. That's what makes for real life. And God let them go hungry in order to learn the sufficiency of God. Now, we need to realize here that Jesus is not quoting Scripture to Satan. We used, when I was in the Good News Club, we used to sing something about the gospel, the, the Bible being a gospel gun. Shoot it at the devil if you want to make him run. But uh, Jesus is not shooting a gospel gun at Satan here. He's not quoting Scripture to Satan. He's quoting Scripture to himself. He's reminding himself of the truth of Scripture. God said, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Therefore, I will not live by some artificial means, something that I concoct, something that I do, something I, that I manipulate and try to work, work out. I'll trust God. I'll count on his sufficiency. Because Jesus saw that hunger was God's will for him. And he would live with hunger until God supplied. And the question, of course, is will we? Will we live with our loneliness, without acceptance from someone that we love very much, without forgiveness, our companionship, until he supplies? The real question is, is the grace of God sufficient? Is he enough? The second temptation is described for us in verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him into the holy city, and he stood him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said... If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You'll notice that Satan uses the same approach. If you are a Son of God, if it's really true that God is your Father, then he will provide for you. And then Satan quotes Scripture to prove it. You know, Satan knows more scripture than you or I will ever know. He knows more than any Old Testament prop I ever had. He's gone through the B-rations and the TMS, and he's been on his own for a long time. He knows scripture backwards and forwards. But he's still satanic because he hasn't obeyed it, hasn't subjected himself to it. And as a matter of fact, Satan does not care if you or I know scripture. What bothers him is when we obey, when we subject ourselves to it. He will, in fact, let us gain knowledge of Scripture in order to make us independent from God. You see, we, we come to believe that mere knowledge, just facts that we possess, somehow gives us power, but it doesn't. It's only when we submit ourselves to the truth that we have power. You see what Jesus is trying, what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do is to act on the basis of Scripture. He's appealing to Jesus' knowledge of Scripture, but he's trying to get him to act in dependence upon a word of Scripture instead of God. Now, there are some interpreters who believe that Satan is tempting Jesus to do something spectacular, that is, jump off of the parapet of the temple so the people will see you and they'll acknowledge you as Messiah. But for myself, I don't think so, because there's no mention here of the reaction of the people. The people, there doesn't seem to be anyone there, as a matter of fact. And Jesus' answer 
argues against that interpretation. His answer, again, from Deuteronomy, is you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not put God to the test. Now again, he's not saying to Satan, I'm God, don't tempt me. He's quoting scripture to himself. He's saying the word of God says you shall not put God to the test. Therefore, I will not put God to the test. That's the point that he's making. He's saying I won't force God's hand. I won't insist that he use his power for my plan and my program. I have a feeling, I can't prove this, but I have a feeling that if Jesus had leaped off of that, that tower, he would have killed himself. J. Vernon McGee told a story one time of a, of a uh, man, a young seminary student who was preaching one of his first messages and he had, was so impressed by Augustine's statement that man is immortal until his work is done that uh, he's, he said uh, as an illustration, if, if it's not my time to go, I could stand in the middle of the Hollywood freeway and cars would pass through me or pass over me and I would be uninjured and and Dr. McGee took him aside after the sermon. He said, young man, if you were standing in the middle of the Hollywood freeway, that would be your time. <laughs> you see what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do? He's, trying to, he's appealing to a word of Scripture, and he wants him to, to respond to a word of Scripture that was not at, all, not at all God's intention for him. He needed, Jesus needed to rely on the Father rather than on a specific word of of scripture at this point and he's trying to get him to force God's hand test God push God in a, in a corner and I think we do that when we sin and rebel and then insist that God care for us when we claim a promise that he's going to protect us even though we're walking in disobedience or when we spend our income frivolously and for things that don't really matter, and then we insist that God meet our needs. Or when we go where we know we should not go because we're going to be tempted beyond our endurance, when we go out with someone that, and we know that our self-control is going to be strained, and we do it anyway, and we insist that God take care of us. We're, we're putting God to the test. And Jesus says, I won't do that. I won't test the Father. So the first temptation is to doubt God's sufficiency. His second temptation is to challenge God's sovereignty, to use God's, for, God's power for his own program. Then in verses 8 and 9, you have the third temptation described. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan's offer is legitimate. He's described by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 as the God of this world. Satan could have given Jesus everything that uh, he promised, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. But what he was doing was tempting Jesus to short-circuit the process, to go through life without pain and without strain and without the cross to jump right across to the to the rule, to his rule as Messiah, and, and receive the crown without going through the cross. 
and that would that would result in his violating God's plan for his life, and he wouldn't do it. C.S. Lewis has been a big help to me in understanding Satan's character. If you've read Screwtape Letters, you probably have have picked up an entirely different concept of what what Satan is like from that that book. Satan's not noble and majestic. He has no noble virtues or characteristics. He's bratish. It's like a little spoiled, self-centered child. And you can see him here appealing to Jesus. Just please, just fall down and worship me. Any, I'll give you anything. Just fall down and worship. But uh, Jesus' response is is swift. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. As Luther puts it, one little word shall fall fell him. So Jesus wouldn't compromise. He would worship and serve God even if it hurt. For him it, it meant a life of servanthood and pain and suffering in the cross. And yet that was the Father's will. And he was committed to doing it God's way. You see, that's always the issue for us. Satan wants to, to offer us rule without the struggle. He, he wants us to bypass the cross, putting ourselves to death and counting on the life of another, even if it means a life of loneliness, a life of, of self-rejecting uh, things that you would, you would normally want to do. And, and Jesus' response is the response that we should make. He says, be gone. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then Matthew tells us that the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So Satan gave Jesus his best shots and he failed. Went off to sulk like, like the villain in the Western melodrama. Curses foiled again. And he's defeated. Until, as Luke puts it, a more opportune time. Luke's description of the of the temptation is much more complete and he tells us that the temptations that actually endured throughout the 40-day period and after Jesus repulsed him, repelled him, he came back again at a later time. But in this particular event, Jesus was the victor. It's interesting, I think, to, to contrast Jesus and Adam. Adam was in a garden. Jesus was in the wilderness. Adam had a companion. Jesus was alone. Adam was was well fed, rested. Jesus was hungry. Adam lost. Jesus won. We, uh, like Jesus, are victors because we're in him. As in Adam, we lose. As the hymn puts it, we're a part of Adam's helpless race. But in Christ we win. Because he won, so can we. And I want you to note how he won. He didn't resort to miracles or to some experience. He won because he subjected himself to the word. But you say, well, certainly Jesus would win. He's God. God has to win. But what we have to have to realize is that, that Jesus in his humanity never acted as God. He was man dependent upon God. He was fully God. There's no question about his deity. But he was not acting as God. He laid aside the independent use of his attributes as God. And he, like us, was a man dependent upon God. 
And for myself, I believe that Jesus could have sinned. I know that many theologians think he couldn't because he was God, but it seems to me that to say that Jesus couldn't sin makes a, makes a mockery of this temptation. It wasn't real. He didn't really feel these attacks. They didn't hurt. And when Jesus said uh, in the garden, not my will but yours be done, and there, there, there wasn't really a conflict of wills there, but I believe there was. We'll never understand the mystery of, of God in, in Christ. He's fully God, but he was also fully man, and as man I believe he could have sinned. And he won not because he was God, but because he submitted himself to the word of God. This means two things, I think, to us. The first is that we need to know the word of God. How many of us would know even one passage from Deuteronomy, much less three? Jesus quotes from, from the book of Deuteronomy three times. The Holy Spirit doesn't work on nothing. He needs truth. That means we need to commit ourselves to knowing the word. Not just listening to tapes or listening to people teach the word, but we need to spend time in a personal way ourselves in, a word, in the word so we can gain the content that we need to face times of, of temptation. We need to memorize it, understand it, so we can apply it. And secondly, we need to submit to it when we're assaulted. Use it as Jesus did. When we're attacked by Satan, we need to remind ourselves of a clear statement of Scripture and submit ourselves to it, because we can. That's what the cross means to us. Our wills have been set free. We're not in bondage any longer. We don't have to give way to sin. Paul says, if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Paul says, we're intended to reign in life. Sin will not have dominion over you. So when we're tempted, we don't have to succumb. We succumb because we, we want to, or we plan to, but we don't have to. So when the attack comes, we can remind ourselves of a, of a word of Scripture, and we can obey it. And that's what David does so frequently in the Psalms. In Psalm 42, when he's depressed, he preaches a sermon to himself and quotes Scripture to himself. And he says, soul, how, why are you disquieted? Why are you oppressed? Hope in God. Snap out of it, soul. And he reminds himself of what he knows that's true about God. Last uh, Monday night, Carolyn shared her experience of waking up the morning before and being terribly depressed about certain things that she had to face over the next couple of weeks. And as she lay in bed, she reminded herself of the truth of God's word. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will be glad and rejoice in it. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. And she could say to herself, all right, soul, start rejoicing. This is God's day. Thank you for this day, for your adequacy. And that's where, what brought her out of that satanic assault. And this is our encouragement, then, to resist the devil. Because as Peter puts it, if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. We're victors, not victims in Christ. Let's stand together. Father, because the Son stood, we know we can. We have his life available to us. We have him indwelling us. And there's power there, both in the cross and in his resurrection, to deliver us from every habit, from the repeated assaults of Satan, regardless of how, how intense they may be. Thank you that, that we have power to believe and to obey. Make us students of the word, not merely to know it, but 
in order to obey it. Teach us the truth that will deliver us. And uh, bring to our minds, by means of your Holy Spirit, truth in time, in specific times of need. And thank you that we can submit to your word, as the Lord Jesus did, and conquer. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.